Thanks, Matt and Rachel, for leading us in a time of praise through song. Uh, welcome to Praxis. Uh, my name is Alan. I'm one of the pastors here at Lighthouse. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, I look forward to that opportunity, hopefully, in the near future. I know that there's a lot of new faces, and so even as we congregate and fellowship around His Word uh, in our small groups, as well as afterwards, we have an uh, informal time of just chilling with some snacks afterwards. Uh, you're more than welcome to stick around and get to know people outside of your small groups uh, a bit better and grow to be um, comfortable here at Praxis, our young adult ministry at Lighthouse. Well, like Chris mentioned in our opening, we are going to continue our study of the book of Romans. We've been in it for quite some time now. Um, we are in chapter 5, so we will continue and plow right ahead. We will be in Romans 5, uh, looking at verses 6 to 11. So if you have your copy of God's Word, go ahead and open them to Romans 5. I'll read our passage for us, and we will plead with the Lord for His kindness and mercy and blessing upon our time. So follow along as I read our section of Scripture. Romans chapter 5, beginning verse 6. This is the Word of God. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray. God, even as we have perused this passage, I fear that we have grown too comfortable and familiar with heavy, wonderful truth. And so do away with any callousness of heart, whittle away any distraction that is upon our mind, that we may be engaged and focused, that your word would pierce us through and through, that we can behold the beauty of Christ, to marvel at your love for us in the sending of your Son. And as we behold you, your glory, your munificence, your affection for righteous sinners like us, we pray that it would be transformative. Lord, that it would cause our dead souls to rise in newness of life, that we would follow in the footsteps of Christ and live by his power, being an aroma of your Son, that others might come to know him, that we might be stirred with greater fervor to pursue him. Use your word, Lord, to nourish and build up your church, that we'd be edified and strong. Lord, that we would endure and run the race faithfully. Be with us now. Bless our time. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you were with us uh, last week, one of the points I made was that we need to feed our feelings with fact. Feed our feelings with fact. And uh, it was kind of my clever way of trying to communicate how feelings are good and right so long as they accord with what's truth, with the truth of God's Word. You know, you should not be giddy with excitement when your home catches on fire. You should not mourn with tears when you told you got the promotion. Unless there's something more going on, those are not right and rational responses. And so it is the same in our spiritual walk, our pursuit of Christ, that our feelings are to be led by facts, facts of the Scriptures. And yet, often today, we can categorize ourselves into one of two slots. We can confess, oh, I'm a thinker or I'm a feeler. And we carry a tendency to kind of bifurcate knowledge and feelings, truth and emotion, as if the two are mutually exclusive. But it's a false dichotomy because the apostle knows of no such conflict. Instead, knowledge and feelings, truth and emotion, theirs is a happy union when the movement is in the proper direction, when the dynamic is correctly understood. And the Christian faith calls for our knowledge and feelings to sync up. Yes, for the truths of Scripture to take the lead, but certainly for godly emotion to surface and follow. Christians should be the ones who feel the most deeply because they know the truth most deeply. And the Apostle Paul is not afraid to hold the two in concert. Paul, as we are familiar with, he unravels complicated doctrine, exploring the riches of these truths. But he does so not to inform our minds or perform some mental exercise, but in order to warm our hearts. He calls us to be moved by the gravity of this knowledge that we lose our breath and rejoice unabashedly at the same time. Just analyze our verses tonight, and you observe how Paul seeks to accomplish this, how he achieves this. He stacks argument upon argument so as to overwhelm us. He structures this section with more than that or much more to pile it on until we can't contain ourselves. The aim and climax is found at the end. In verse 17, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But before we can celebrate at the top, we have to ascend this glorious mountain. And the Apostle Paul has been acting as our guide. We were brought to the base, to the bottom in Romans 4. The foundation is justification by faith. In chapter 5, Paul climbs higher by pointing out stunning vistas, marvelous views that the gospel affords us. This is what we peered at last week how Paul enumerates all the benefits bestowed upon us when we are declared righteous. More than just the sterile, legal rendering, this is heart-rendering, a significant game-changer that abounds with blessings, peace with God, access to grace, 
hope of glory. Well, tonight, tonight is the capstone. As we summit to the peak, Paul camps out and has us mull over, meditate upon how justification by faith displays God's love and loyalty. God's love and loyalty. In Romans 5, verses 6 to 11, we see first how the death of Jesus Christ assures us of God's love. The death of Christ assures us of his love. Paul is picking up, resuming his last thought at the end of verse 5, which says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And now the four, the conjunction four at the beginning of verse 6, is Paul's unpacking of this very divine love. Look again at verse 6. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, there's a lot of debate, speculation over what Paul means by at the right time. You know, is he talking about a precise moment like 758 on October 7th? Is he referring to a favorable opportunity where everything lines up, like how the trade routes at this time established in Rome would allow news of Jesus' death and therefore the gospel to spread to the ends of the earth? And these interpretations have their merit, but I think the apostle is focusing on something else. He's talking about condition. The right conditions prompt the right time. It is the perfect situation for Jesus to die. Think of when it's appropriate to throw someone a lifesaver. You know, you wouldn't toss one out to your friend when he's chilling on an inflatable flamingo at a pool party. You know, if you did that, he would just give you a weird look, like, what are you doing, you weirdo? But when someone is swept away by a roaring rapid, when they're on the cusp of drowning, that's the right situation, to throw them a lifesaver. The right time for saving is when you're in danger of dying. So Paul, like a doctor, is delivering the diagnosis. The conditions that made the death of Christ both appropriate and necessary, he says, while we were still weak. Weak. We hear weak. We picture maybe physical strength. We envision someone who always gets sick or someone struggling with a five-pound dumbbell. Or we imagine those who tend to be sensitive frail emotionally, maybe a colleague who's easily offended, who has a knack for making a mountain out of a molehill. But what is the weakness Paul has in mind? Well, we gather clues by looking at the context, by poking and searching around our passage. And Paul, we see, finishes this verse by saying, Christ died for the ungodly. He writes similar words in verse 8 as he does here in verse 6. And he says, while we were not weak, but while we were sinners. And so all that elucidates what the apostle is getting at. Paul is speaking about a spiritual weakness, our ungodliness, our sinfulness. And really, weakness here is almost too weak of a word. Because in English, in how we use the word weak, 
it kind of carries this connotation that we can actually do something about it, right? If you're weak, well then, hit the gym, lift weights, or grow a thicker skin, get stronger. But in the original, in the Greek, this weakness stresses absolute inability. You're totally helpless, and there is nothing you can do about it, which is why we're introduced to another. Since we are unable to deal with our inability, someone else has to. The conditions have been met. The stage has been set. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The death of Jesus is such a central belief, central conviction, we can gloss over, at it, gloss over it without batting an eye. But to highlight, to refresh us on how remarkable this is, Paul plays the comparison game. Look at verse 7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps maybe for a good person one would dare even to die. Now, before we tackle this verse, I want you to just pause and consider who you love. Who do you love in your life? Is it a college roommate, a funny coworker, a romantic interest, maybe tried and true mom? Well, if you're anything like me, the natural inclination of your heart is to love those who love you. If someone is nice to me, buys me dinner, roots for the Lakers, and laughs at my jokes, this may make me sound shallow, but I think to myself, hey, I like you. You're a good friend. We gravitate towards those who make us feel good, who make much of us. But look, I don't think I need to convince you. Anyone and everyone can love when there's much to gain, when you're on the winning side. The better indicator of love is when it costs us something, when we are the ones who lose. And the ultimate display, the ultimate sacrifice of such genuine love, it's dying for someone. It's final. One-time use. No going back. And we find this act of love admirable, compelling, powerful, it's why this is such a common trope in movies and books. You know, you have the general jumping on the grenade to save his troop, or the husband pushing the wife out of the way of a speeding car. And the only thing that can improve upon this kind of love is the kind of sacrifice being made. It depends on the parties involved, who is trading places, who is saved, and who is sacrificed. You see, there's a world of difference if I, if I die for Justin Bieber and if, with, if Justin Bieber dies for me, right? I won't say which one is more noble, but clearly me dying for Justin Bieber. But in this verse, Paul presents two scenarios for us to consider. Dying for a righteous person and then dying for a good one. Now, to our ears, that might sound like they're the same. But Paul appears to make some sort of distinction. 
we can make an educated guess as to this difference. In all likelihood, a righteous person is exactly that, someone who is righteous, a law-abiding citizen, an upstanding person, someone virtuous, worthy of imitation, a paragon of society. Think Mother Teresa. And to die for such a character, while difficult, it's not far-fetched. After all, if someone is worthy of such a sacrifice, it's the noble, it's the righteous. Paul then presses the hypothetical further. He intensifies the situation by adding an element of intimacy. The good person is personal. The nuance here is one of affinity, a relational dimension. The virtues of this good person are experienced firsthand. Think Mother Teresa as if she's literally your mom. In such a case, to die for her, while still difficult, is now even more understandable. These are extreme cases, the exception to the norm, and yet it's unexpected. In fact, that's Paul's point. You can hear his skepticism in these verses. While such a sacrifice sacrifice may be understandable and impressive, He's not too optimistic about it actually happening. Notice the modifiers he uses in this verse. One will scarcely die for a righteous person. Scarcely. It's uncommon, low percentage chance. Perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. Perhaps, dare, even. Someone might muster up the courage, but don't count on it. Even in the greatest of relationships, the greatest demonstration of human love is simply not guaranteed. But not so when it comes to God. Verse 8. But God contrasts a pivot now, a huge momentum shift, but God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, Paul essentially takes verse 6, and he repeats himself with a couple of subtle yet important changes. First, he inserts God here, and he defines God's love. I'm using the ESV, and I wish the ESV included it, but the NASB as well as the NIV have an additional word in their translation. It says own. That God shows his own love, distinguishing this love from all the rest, that God's love is unique, unrivaled. He is in his own category. You know, if a gun was drawn and pointed at the president, you might stand in the way, depending on your opinion of him. If a gun is drawn on your best friend, well, you're more likely to get in between But a gun drawn on your best enemy, fat chance. Dying and sacrifice will never cross your mind, right? Well, it stays on God's. It's how God expresses his own love. That though we are not virtuous, we provide no benefit to God. While we hesitate to die for righteous, even the good, God doesn't blink an eye. 
He sends his son to die on behalf of vile rebels, wicked criminals for sinners. Sinners. And we do well to dwell here, to consider the heinousness of our sin. To breeze by this is to miss the depth of God's love. In his sunset years, John Newton, the author of the hymn Amazing Grace, is famous for saying this, Although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a greater Savior. You see, what makes grace so amazing and God's love so incredible is he sets his affection on sinners like you and me. And that's the second change Paul makes from verse 6 to verse 8. He's speaking face to face. He's personalizing these lofty ideas of sacrifice and substitution. He's using the first-person pronoun. God's love for us, that Christ died for us. There's an intimacy here that we need to know well. The apostle takes the theoreticals of verse 7, and he is now dropping it into our laps. We don't play what-ifs when it comes to God's love. We're not left wondering about hypothetical scenarios like before. We can be assured. Jesus Christ died for sinners for us which is precisely what makes this love like no other. You know, when I think of love, I think of my family. Specifically, I think about my love for my children. Not because I don't love my wife, just um, disclaimer. I love, love you, Barry. Um, but for the sake of this sermon, I was thinking about my love for my children. And there are ways in which I can rationalize this strong emotional uh, pull and affection I have for them. You know, I, I can explain it by saying, well, there's obviously a biological link. You know, I might love my kids because they share my genetic makeup. I don't really see it, but I've been told that Everett, my son, looks like me. Um, just kidding, I'm clearly his father. Um, or, you know, I might love my kids because... Uh, I think it's the wise thing to do, right? It's in the best interest of my own preservation, my own survival later on. You know, I'll take care of my children now so that when I am gray and old, they will return the favor, hopefully. Now, these incentives, these motivations might persuade me to love my children, but none of them, none of them are sufficient enough to strong-arm me, to obligate and force me to actually love them. At the end of the day, the way I explain it is, it's just intuitive. I love them because I love them. And yet, how much more with God? At the end of the day, I mean, what can we really say? The love of God doesn't appeal sufficiently or satisfactory to our senses and our logic. It goes against the grain of human impulse. It is scandalous and unimaginable. And therein, it is wonderful. There is no greater demonstration of God's love 
than when, he, when the Son of God dies for sinners against God. And I love how simple and yet profound this is. You want to talk about how the secret things belong to the Lord? His love is paradoxically a mysterious truth. He loves because he loves. These verses are redirecting our eyes. We are the type of people who will look to our careers, social status, our savings account to gauge and judge God, to measure his love. We think God loves us when he provides us a cushy job, a significant other, or a boatload of cash. Then, we think, then I'll know he's real. Then I'll know he cares for me. Then I'll come to grips with his love. But look, we're searching for his love in all the wrong places because that is not where he has disclosed and revealed his love. God's love is not measured by circumstances. God's love is manifested at the cross in the death of his son. So if you want to behold the love of God, look to Jesus Christ and him crucified. And if God loves us, not after, but while, while we are sinners, in our muck and mire, we are assured not only of his love, but of his loyalty, which brings us to our second point tonight. Secondly, the life of Jesus assures us of his loyalty. It's one thing to know we're saved. It's another thing to know it's forever. And Paul shows how the two are connected. And God's love is a loyal love. Verse 9. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more... Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? There's a lot of similarities in these two verses. They both discuss past realities with future implications. They both build their argumentation by going from what's greater to the lesser. You see that in the much mores, right? Much more. Here's the logic. If I'm willing to give you a hundred bucks... Will I refuse you if you ask for a penny? No. Well, in the same, if God has given what is most precious to him, if God has given his son, is there anything he would withhold from us that is not for our good? Paul now uses this line of reasoning to teach us about the surety of our salvation, that God's love is not fleeting but loyal. Since Jesus has died for us, we are certainly safe and secure for eternity. In verse 9, Paul returns to justification, a legal term that ushers us, pushes us back into God's courtroom. Though condemned and guilty, we learned previously that we are acquitted by the blood of Jesus. A payment has been made on our behalf that we are declared righteous by the death of God's Son and God will deliver on what was purchased by Jesus. You see, here's the rub. 
someone has to foot the bill. Someone has to foot the bill. Someone is going to pay. The wrath of God will fall on an individual. Either Jesus bears it or you will. Either Jesus pays the penalty for your sin in the past on the cross or you will pay the price in the future in hell. But listen, there is no double jeopardy for our sins. To charge twice for a single item is shady business. We know this. You know, as an Asian, that is a big no-no, right? I find that very offensive. But thank God, God is no cheat. He is just. If you have been ransomed by Christ, then the cup of God's wrath has been drunk dry. Paul advances a step further in verse 10. Justification now is replaced with reconciliation. And so where justification transports us into the courtroom, reconciliation takes us home. We touched on this last week when Paul elaborates on the blessings of justification by faith, that we have peace with God. We are restored, reconciled, in a word, relationship. A tender relationship from a citizen to a child. The progression from justification and reconciliation is similar to the adoption process. You know, there's a lot of paperwork to fill out and file. There's a hearing date to show up before the judge. There is a legal declaration to finalize everything. But waiting for months and years, jumping through all the logistical hoops, paying the enormous fees in order to make the adoption official is all worth it in the end. Why? Because a new family member is welcomed. A new family is formed. And that's what Paul is keying in on here. You think God will forfeit a child that Jesus has literally shed his own blood, sweat, and tears for? Absolutely not. God is loyal to his own. What's more staggering is that when we think about adoption, usually in our mind's eye, we see it in a positive light, right? Kind of like this Disney-like setting where you have these fictitious but eager and kind parents on the one hand, and on the other hand, you have this cute, chubby, obedient child who just yearns to be loved. And I hate to break it to you, but that is not us. Instead, our passage tells us God pursues us at our ugliest, in our messiness, while we were still sinners, while we were enemies. It can't get any worse. And yet, that's where our confidence grows. Because if God was this tender, this resilient, this adamant when we were kicking and screaming against him, how much more does his affection gush now that we are embraced as his children? See how robust this is? God has done the harder and greater work of sending his son to die for his enemies. Then you better be bet 
he will do the easier thing of keeping those who are now his friends. As Jesus declares in John 17, all that the Father has given me, I have guarded, I have kept, not one of them has been lost. I think here at Lighthouse at Praxis, we readily affirm our salvation doesn't rest on our own shoulders. And that's right. It is a work of God. It is a work of God. But do you realize that's also true for our sanctification? It is a work of God. I'm not saying our strategy for growth is simply let go and let God as if we don't play a part. No, we are exhorted to participate, to work out our salvation. Just don't forget. We don't do this on our own. But as Paul says in Philippians, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For, here's why, it is God who works in you, both to will and work for his good pleasure. Praxis is your hope for maturity for spiritual survival or growth solely based on your own resolve, on your pluckiness, on your diligence, on a new Bible reading plan you found, or on linking yourself with good accountability partners. And those are good things, but where is your trust ultimately? Is it in your capabilities Is it in others or the God who has vowed to never leave or forsake you? We are not alone. But let me ask, are we operating and journeying through this life as if we are? Paul is pleading with us, put your trust in God, his loyalty. He holds you fast, not the other way around. Read verse 10 in the affirmative. Now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. God has pledged himself to his people, and he confirms it with the life of his son. Isn't that curious? Life. Not death, but life. What is the apostle getting at? Uh, Many of you know that one of our Praxis Course staff Uh, our own beloved Corey. Is he here? I don't think he's here, which makes me sad because this is my props to him. Uh, But Corey enjoys rock climbing. Some of you might even be the lucky few to have been invited. I am still waiting for my invitation. (laughs) But if it's your first time rock climbing, you might be a little nervous. Understandably so, right? You're unsure of how to do the thing, you know, where to put your foot or how to scale a steep boulder. You're concerned about whether a particular crevice or ledge is stable and firm, firm enough to hold your weight. And so Corey, being the seasoned pro, he shows you how it's done. He traverses up the rock, even up those precarious parts, until he is standing at the very top. Nothing gives way. Corey doesn't come crashing down. And you look at him and you're assured, if he can do it, so can I. (laughs) I mean that as a compliment. (laughs) But because Corey lives, you're confident you can follow his path and it will all be okay. 
Now, did I just compare Corey to Jesus? Maybe. (laughs) But what's more important is what I'm illustrating here. The resurrection of Jesus, a function in a greater glorious way. Now, we don't need to worry about the future because Christ is our trailblazer. We don't worship a dead Savior, but a risen one. He is living proof. And he's emerged on the other side, victorious over sin and death, standing, showing us our salvation is rock solid. Jesus presently petitions on our behalf. Jesus presently supplies us the strength. He is with us every step of the way, ensuring that we endure to the end. And his life is proof of it. To think otherwise would require God to cast his own son out of heaven. And from time to time, people will say, Jesus died that we might have life. And I get the sentiment being communicated, but it's truncated. More accurately, by faith, by union with Christ, Jesus died and I died with him. But because he lives, so I live. This is what Paul expresses in Galatians 2.20, right? I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. We are assured of God's love and assured of God's loyalty. Paul wraps this section up with how we should respond, how we should respond in verse 11. He says, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The application is basic. Our response is twofold. We receive and we rejoice. Receive and rejoice. Throughout this passage, it is evident who the hero of the story is. The spotlight is fixed on God. He's been at the center of all the action. Notice the passive voice of these verbs. These aren't things we do, but things done to us. Verse 9, we have been justified. We shall be saved. Verse 10, we were reconciled. We shall be saved again. And verse 11 reiterates it. We receive reconciliation. The charge is simple. Receive reconciliation. Paul has already told the secret of how. By faith. By faith. That you repent and believe. Non-Christian, if you are here, nothing prevents you. Let today be the day of salvation. Receive the gift of justification by faith, reconciliation with God, his own love, his only son who died and was raised for sinners like you and me. Receive and then rejoice. Our part is to praise. You know, if you are gifted a brand new car, if you recover from risky surgery, if you are rescued from a fire, do you concern yourself with what you did? Like, well, I was the one in need of a ride, or I was the one with the tumor, 
No, that's ridiculous. Your attention is on another. The generosity, the kindness, the service of the one who helped you. It's natural. It becomes your reflex. It's your joy to speak well of the one who donated the car, to hug the doctor who operated on your brain, to spend time with the fireman who saved your life. Praise is befitting of the weak made strong, the ungodly godly, the sinner saved. Rejoice in God through Jesus Christ. The wedding ring is an exceptional piece of jewelry because of what it signifies. It's not given to every single individual, but placed on the finger of one special person, the groom or the bride. It is a symbol of intimate, exclusive, unique love. But that's not all the wedding ring signifies. After all, the wedding ring isn't just worn once on the wedding day. No, it's worn at all times because the marital vows between husband and wife are for a lifetime. The ring is circular, representing the enduring commitment between two spouses. Yes, it is symbolic of their love, but a loyal love till death do you part. And friends, God's wedding ring to his people is shaped as a cross. His marital vows are embodied in the life, death, and resurrection of his son. God shows his own love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And God shows his own loyalty in that while Christ lives, we will live. For Christians, the irony is in our earthly lives, we may be apart from him, but in death, we will never be. And there, we will rejoice over his loyal love then, as we do now. Let's pray. God, we even plead and beg for your help now to grasp the profundity of your love, the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses understanding, that we may be filled with your fullness, to gaze upon the face of Christ and to marvel at your glory, to see someone who would die and not for the noble, the accomplished, but for those who have rebelled against you, those who have sinned against you. You have demonstrated a love like no other, and we pray that it would mesmerize us. It would arrest our affections until we are changed from the inside out, that we would live differently because of your faithfulness, your loyalty to us so powerfully expressed at the cross. And as we peer at Christ arisen, it would fuel our faith to press on, to pursue him, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. We ask for your help. We ask for your help that we would, we would mull over these truths and that we would express them with raised voices in sharing in small group, in 
sharpening and edifying one another to be faithful with what has been entrusted to us. May your word work upon our hearts and conform us to the image of Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.